freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. I'm Bill Ayers, and Light Ailee, Jordan Allen, and I are gathered here with you in the spirit and memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. Thanks to Tom Morello, artist, activist, troubadour, for Let Freedom Ring, our chosen anthem, and for jolting us awake again and again and giving us courage for the work ahead. You may remember the humorous yet quite serious slogan that Woody Guthrie had scrawled on his guitar. This machine kills fascists, it said. It's become iconic, but Woody didn't invent the phrase. He borrowed it from industrial workers who were scratching it onto lathes and other material bound for the war zone during World War II. This machine kills fascists. When I saw Tom in concert, he had, in the grand tradition, taped in large letters on the front of his acoustic guitar, Arm the Homeless. Amen. Humorous, but also serious. And one reminder, I'll be seeing Tom soon at the 100th anniversary of John Brown Day in upstate New York, where Tom will be honored by John Brown Lives with the Spirit of John Brown Freedom Award, and I'll report back on that. We're broadcasting from the traditional lands of the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa. We acknowledge them, thank them, and honor the history of stolen land and resources, the history of the mass American genocide, and we pledge to keep our hearts and our eyes open in shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. And we're transmitting, as always, on the Freedom Frequency, calling on you, wherever you are, to join us as we look uneasily at the world we've inherited and search for spaces that could or be or should be, but are not yet. We tune into first and fundamental questions. What is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us to, and drive us forward? Good questions for kids to think about, good questions for all of us. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. And today's poem is Patrick Bowie of Cabrini Green by Miss Gwendolyn Brooks. What is devout is never to forget, never to shelf the value and the beauty. Patrick, vivid, valid, lyrical. We cannot reach, we cannot touch. The radiant richness that was Patrick cannot be reached again, cannot be hugged, cannot be visited. What is devout is never to forget that he was with us for such a little while. Our splendor, our creative spirit, our sparkling contribution, our flash of influence interrupted, our interrupted man. Our second regular feature is a free write where you can pause the podcast and reflect for a moment on the page. Today's prompt is this. What were the circumstances of your birth and what is your origin story? Okay, start writing. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. 
You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews, and follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Welcome back. I'm joined in dialogue today with two extraordinary comrades and freedom fighters. Ronaldo Hudson is the Education Director of the Illinois Prison Project and the inaugural 2021 Artists for the People Practitioner Fellow with the Posen Center Human Rights Lab and the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture at the University of Chicago. Alice Kim is the Director of the Posen Center Human Rights Lab and she teaches at Stateville Prison with the Prison Neighborhood Arts and Education Project. Thank you both for being here. Hey, you're welcome, you're welcome. It's great to be here. So I think we should start, I mean, we can go back and unpack what these various organizations are that you all work with and build and organize with. But I'd like to start, I think, with your relationship, how you know each other, <laughs> how you've come to be such close comrades in arms and working on project after project together, heart to heart, hand in hand. How'd you guys begin this? Where does it start? Wow, it starts many, many moons ago. You know, uh, it's funny when I think about it. every time I look at Alice, I realize that this movement is still alive. And so we go all the way back to the 90s. Really? You know, That's right. Yep. All the way back to the 90s when it wasn't popular, you know, to say, you know, I care about those people that are incarcerated. You know, when it was, a e we were a much easier target back then when our friendship developed. And so she stepped into a very hard, nasty, dark space and said, these guys and these people's lives matter. Yeah. How did she do that? I mean, where were you at the time? Wow. I was actually on the Illinois' death row, mm -hmm. condemned by the state of Illinois. The state of Illinois said that there was nothing redeemable about me. And Alice Kim said, but you guys count. You know, so when you talk about a revolution, a revolutionary, you have to realize that you actually have to put the work in and not just talk the talk. Yeah. And so we go all the way back to the early, you know, days. I know. Ronaldo is one of my oldest friends now, right? Um, I met him, I think it was actually in 1998. Um, on Illinois' death row, uh, probably in the visiting room. We probably met before that either through uh, phone calls um, or by letter. Um, I still have. I've saved every single letter that people from death row sent me. So uh, Ronaldo's letters are in my archives. And the thing about Ronaldo's letters is that he always drew on the envelope. Mm -hmm. So you always knew. I mean, even before you saw um, the return address, I'd know if it was a letter from Ronaldo because his drawings would be um, uh, on the envelope. But yeah, Ronaldo describes death row as a dark, dank, nasty place, and it certainly was. But the people who I met who were on death row were anything but that. Um, they brought this dank, sterile visiting room to life with um, who they were um, as human beings. and. I have learned so much from Ronaldo and uh, the people that I met on death row. It's 
it's really amazing uh, that since Ronaldo uh, got out in September 2020, right? Yes. Wow. Yeah, since he got out in September 2020, uh, it was out at Precious Blood. He and I had not been in touch for a while because I started teaching with the Prison Neighborhood Arts and Education Project. And when you teach inside and you're uh, considered what a full clearance volunteer, you can't have any contact with mm. anybody inside the IDOC system. So we had not had any direct contact. And then I saw him at, outside of Precious Blood at his welcome home party. And, yeah. you know, we've just since then, in the year and a half, it feels like it's been longer than a year and a half sometimes, right? You've been out for a year and a half. I've been out a year and a half, yeah. Well, let's go back and, and unpack two things. Mm -hmm. So. Ronaldo was on death row, and how did you get to death row, and then how did you get out? All right, so I was an organizer with a group called the Campaign to End the Death Penalty. Mm. Uh, the Campaign to End the Death Penalty, we were really the new kids on the block, an organization that was pretty new um, in the anti-death penalty movement. And um, in Illinois, it was actually the Death Row 10, a group of men who, black men who were on death row, uh, they called themselves the Death Row 10. They had all been tortured by former um, uh, police commander John Burge. They had reached out to the campaign to end the death penalty to ask us to be their voice on the outside. And that's how I um, specifically got involved mm -hmm. in um, this work and met the Death Row 10 and also um, the fellow travelers um, like Ronaldo, who actually had his own Ronaldo Hudson Mercy Committee at the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because when I think about the Death Row 10, I don't think about the Death Row 10. I think about Stanley Howard. Mm -hmm. I think about Ronnie Kitchen. I think about you know, Leroy Owens and Leonard Kidd. And I think about the people that just from a general conversation, right, we were just on the gallery, right? And you're right, Alice, just for a second, I want to go back to that point that you made that as gloomy and as nasty as it was, uh, it was the personalities that pushed through. Mm -hmm. It was the spirit of warriors that had no idea of their true identity was caught up because of bad circumstances that resonated in that space and so it was life on death row right. and the people that was there and one of the things i always love about our relationship is when people think about the birds torture cases and they think about and it's such an easy act if you ask me to say these people who are innocent are about to be executed and so I started raising my hand and said, excuse me, excuse me, I'm not innocent. Do I matter? I'm not innocent, meaning? Meaning I'm the person responsible for the crime mm. that sent me to prison. Got it. But I wasn't the person responsible for sentencing me to death. Got it. You know, the state of Illinois holds that responsibility. And you stood up and said, but I'm still a human being. I stood up and said that I matter and my voice should be heard as well. Because there are people who, because we live in such an adversarial uh, space with respect to the criminal legal system, right? It's them versus us, us versus them. 
And they do that to keep us from actually communicating in a way that will bring light, if you will, to the injustice that exists for both innocent and guilty alike. I know language means a lot to you. And when when they say things like um, inmate, convict, and so on, that, that makes that kind of puts your teeth on edge. It uh, does. So talk about that. Talk about the language of incarceration and the language of death row. Well, what makes it so deep for me is when I went to prison, I couldn't read or write. And so, like, how you speak to me was vitally important because I began to communicate based upon what I was hearing, not what I knew, right? And so when they say things like inmate, you know, offender, resident, I was like, am I defined by this term? Do they now get to rename me, right? Because of my incarceration. And so as I began to become educated, what I discovered was that when you want to own something, then you name it, Mm. right? And so I had a name when I was arrested and it was an offender and it was an inmate, it was Ronaldo, right? And so I'm like, well, excuse me, like, why do you get to rename me? Like, like, where does that, like, and then I started opening books. And I said, ah, this is what people do to property and things they buy and things they own, you know. We've seen this before, it's called slavery. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to identify with who you really are. I want you to identify as to what I call you. So they might call you convict or inmate. They don't call you man of integrity, artist, um, man of empathy and so on. Exactly, and that's so important because oftentimes people talk about vision right? Vision come from, come from the perception to see, right? I was listening to a tape earlier today and a brother was talking about eyesight and mind sight, right? When you look at me, I look a certain way, but you can't see my mind sight until I open my mouth, mm. right? For from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speak, mm. right? And so because there's a deep well, that dwells in me, I can sip, I can allow people to sip upon the fact that I've been researching and studying and meditating to find out who I am. And I am not an inmate. I am not an offender. I am not the worst thing that I've ever done. I'm a person who committed an offense. I'm not the offense. Got it. And this goes to what you were saying about going to the visiting room Mm -hmm. and finding life there. Mm -hmm. Both of you talk a bit about that in concrete terms, because I think that's an interesting contradiction that most people would find a stretch. I guess I'll say that um, when we, or when I started meeting folks on death row, it just became so clear to me that it was important to provide what is it that we could do, right? Um, You know, it was important to be able to provide a platform so they could tell the world in their own voices 
who they are, right? And I think that was one of the beautiful things about the campaign and the death penalty is that we did try to do just that. It was so apparent to me meeting Ronaldo, meeting Stanley, meeting Ronnie, right? It's, you know, I had no idea what to expect when I first started doing this work. I had no idea. And I think, um, you know, everything changed. <laughs> Setting foot in that visiting room. I, I, I've described being in that visiting room with, you know, the kind of glare of the, the guard at the center of the room, but then the wide smiles of, you know, Ronaldo, Stanley, Ronnie, um, everyone else. There was so much warmth that was generated. So I think as organizers, as activists at, um, against the death penalty, one thing we did get right was we said we got to create these platforms so people can speak for themselves. So one of the things that we did was these live from death row events. Mm -hmm. And that was when we had people call in from their prison cell and speak to audiences, classrooms, like at now Ronaldo's artist in residence at University of Chicago. I bet he probably spoke to classrooms um, at the University of Chicago back in the day. And that was before we had all of this technology, right? It was, it was hard to get, yeah. to figure it out, all the technology to um, amplify a, a phone call. Um, but when a call came through and you can hear someone telling their own story, it's very different than, you know, anything. It had a different kind of power than any facts about the death penalty um, could do in terms of saying they, they try to separate people who are on death row from the rest of us. But through the telephone, airwaves, whatever it is, yeah. that life came through just as that life came through um, in the visiting room. Yeah, it is so funny you mentioned that. I remember when I called into one of the death row live, death row live events mm -hmm. and I heard the cheering. And when you are placed in an environment where you don't get any cheering, mm -hmm. you know, you don't get any, you know, acknowledgement of your humanity. And I was like, man, these people are excited to hear, you know, from us. And what people don't know about the experience is I wish I could record the conversations that occurred on the galleries after those calls, because we would call down the gallery. Man, I just called in, man, it was a thousand people. I don't know how many people was there, but it felt like, man, it was a thousand people there. And they was like, enough is enough, you know, yeah. right? No justice, no peace. Right. And so we Did would be chanting. They say death row, we say hell no, death row, hell no, death row, hell no. Remember right. Stanley Howard used to lead those, lead those chants on the gallery. Oh, so yeah. we would always chant mm -hmm. that to um, the yeah. guys when they called in. And Stanley started saying, hang on a minute. And he started leading mm -hmm. the chant, holding the phone down the gallery. Yeah. And he'd say, they say death row. And everyone would yell, we say hell no from yeah. death row. Yeah. And think about this. You had people that had no idea, this is what makes it so funny, that had no idea of the movement that was occurring around them, but they heard the chant, mm. right? And they, and they were just home, oh, they say death row, who say hell no? Right. And the chant, man, and, and I have to go back to this because it's so funny. So when the phones are hung up, people forget that life continues. And so one of the things that I remember was the ongoing conversation. Man, I said this, Jack. Uh, 
And I, and I told them people, man, that I matter. And they was like, you do matter. That's right. And man, that feels good. And be like, man, can I? Did they let me speak? Right. And so it was so many stories. See, I start, I learn something new every single time I talk to Ronaldo about those days, right? Or when I talk to Ronnie Kitchen about those days, because our ability to talk to one another, one another was so limited during that time, right? So even if we would talk on the phone, it would be limited by 30 minutes. Now, actually, corrections, the IDOC has limited the phone calls to 20 minutes, I think. Back yeah. then, we had 30 minutes, but after 30 minutes, it was over. Sometimes they could call you back and you could extend the call and have another 30-minute call, but yeah. it was so limited. And then, of course, letter writing is it has its own constraints too, right? Just because of the slowness of the mail. So I learn things all the time about what was happening on the inside that we had no idea. Yeah. You know, but what kills me, I mean, I mean, I'd like you to dilate on this point, but what kills me is, you know, the whole experience being arrested, having a, a situation in front of you and, and feeling isolated, feeling beat down, whether physically, psychologically, both, and then finding each other and seeing a spark of humanity in each other, and then a spark from somebody like Alice Kim coming in, and then the spark from hearing the 10,000 people in the auditorium <laughs> chanting with you. I mean, you know, we're exaggerating, but isn't there something amazing about building a sense of your own humanity? Absolutely. Like, and I still think it was 10,000. If it wasn't in that audience, it was 10,000 affected, you know, because there is an energy that comes from the life, you know, that when people realize, hey, those those men are like vibrant and they're strong and they're, and they're sharing ideas about real revolution, you know, about real evolu the evolution of the development of the mind. Like, how do you become better when everything around you is saying die. So you're know? encouraging each other. That's Absolutely. what I hear you saying. And did the, did the Department of Corrections ever encourage you to learn, to, to flourish, <laughs> to <laughs> create? I mean, uh, I mean, you were doing it for each other. Right. I'll give you a quick example. And it's so funny when I think about it now. When I was trying to get in school, a deputy director and the warden was walking down the gallery because they used to tour death row. That was their like place that they would show off. And so all the brass. A tourist site. It was like a tourist site. It's like a zoo. Yeah. You know, if we really get re real about yeah. it, it was like, hey, there's Ronaldo, there's John Wayne Gacy, and there's, you know, Stanley Howard, and there's Ronnie Kitchen, and there's, and they had these, in fact, they had these little booklets with, they could open and they had little, you know, uh, writings with each one of us in it, right? And so when they have certain tours, they could walk through and say, oh, you're talking to so-and-so, so-and-so, and he did such and such. Oh, wow. Right? Oh, wow. And so yeah. step back away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That's a real thing, <laughs> right? And there again, they're defining you by, by the act. worst moment and by right. one act, right? Right. And so I remember when I was excited about going to school and I said to the warden, hey, warden, I want to, can I, you sign me up for school? And the deputy director turned and looked at me and said, Hudson, why wouldn't we educate you? We're going to execute you. Damn. Right? Damn. I was like, 
the hell you not? Right? <laughs> and so I was like, I was more determined to become educated so that one, I can tell the story, right? I was like, I'm going to tell the story one day because people need to know how much we made it through, right? And so I also remember like how when guys would earn their degrees on death row, they would be celebrated by their death row peers. Mm -hmm. And so we would do little things because they used to, they had different, they had college courses that they gave people access to, but they didn't have the basics. And the majority of the people were functionally illiterates. And it was a group that actually wasn't. And those guys used to get college courses. But when they uh, pass a class or something, it would be a chant on the wing, wow. you know, yeah. So you were building each other and the, the relationships mattered. And I would imagine relationships with activists, knowing that there's a world out there that cares about you, built that up and the mothers and the relation, the relatives, right? I mean, absolutely. Um, I also think that for those of us on the outside, right? Ronaldo, um, Ronnie, others, they were the sparks, right? They were the sparks who really, I think, rocked our worlds, changed our worlds, and um, helped us, you know, in so many ways. I, I credit um, the men on death row for really teaching me um, what matters. So right? in a funny way, you might have gone there with a good heart and you wanted to do good in kind of a charitable way. But somehow you ended up being a student Absolutely. of the men on death row and you became, you came to see yourself in solidarity more than in service. Is that fair? That's entirely fair. And also you just used the word solidarity. And that's something that many of us who are parts of different social movements, um, we use that term often, right? And I think it was really from the people on death row, people who are incarcerated, um, the mothers, the family members, that I really learned the true meaning of solidarity, the true meaning of, of sacrifice, because we saw it happen. Mm -hmm. um, we saw it before our very eyes, what it really means to sacrifice for one another and to be in solidarity with one another. Yeah. Hey, I would love for you to share the story, if you would, Alice, how Lulu and, and Ronnie's family Right. Remember when y'all came to visit mm -hmm. and you were expecting to visit Ronnie? And what did she tell you? What did Ronnie's mother tell you? Yeah, the first time I went to visit Ronnie Kitchen with his mother, Luva Bell, um, we got to the visitor center and um, I gave them Ronnie's name. We were on the visiting list. And Luva immediately stepped up and said, oh, wait a minute, I'm, I'm actually calling out Ronaldo Hudson. And I questioned her. I said, wait, I thought we were visiting Ronnie. And she said to me, you know, Ronnie's getting a visit from you. So I'm going to call out Ron Ronaldo so that he can have a visit too. Yes. And in that moment, you know, and from there, I, I learned so much about their relationship, how um, Luva had become a surrogate mother to Ronaldo. Ronaldo didn't have his biological mother wasn't um, on the scene. And so um, that taught me a lot, that moment. Mm -hmm. um, that, and, and from there on, so many of the mothers have said, you have to be there for every mother's child, for every mother's, um, yeah. not just my own. Yeah. Yeah. I love that story. And it's so true 
But I have to say this, and I love her. She used to cheat me at cards. <laughs> and I think she used to call me because I was the only one she could cheat. But <laughs> but it's just little things and seeing her humanity and seeing... That's so funny because Ronnie would lose on purpose so I could win. Yeah, she didn't know she would cheat me and win. But it was so much fun because here was my friend who was also on death row, who was innocent. Think about this. Yeah. Right? His mother was fighting for the liberation of her innocent son. And she said, but Ronaldo, you're guilty and you're my son. It's so beautiful. And that fired me up. Man. Yeah. And so I used to leave the vision room more charged up than Ronnie at times. Yeah. Because my wife said, man, that's my mama. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's our mama. Yeah, y'all, it. it is. So, so when you began this work for you, Alice, mm -hmm. did you think you were going to win? Did you think you could eliminate death row? And did you, in the early days, Ronaldo, think you could win and, and see the day when you'd be artist in residence at the University of Chicago? Well, I'll say that I did believe that we could end the death penalty. I, I did believe that. But I do remember um, some early interactions with uh, veteran abolitionists, death penalty abolitionists. And I remember one person had said to me, um, I hope we can end the death penalty in our lifetime. And I was blown away by that. I thought, are you serious? We have to wait our entire lifetimes to maybe get rid of the death penalty. Um, and lo and behold, we, you know, we started organizing in 1998 as or that's when I got more specifically involved in the movement. Before that, in 1995, I had uh, learned about Mumia Abu-Jamal's case. And um, that's how I became tangentially involved in anti-death penalty um, activism. And then in Illinois, we saw Governor Ryan declare a moratorium in 2001. And then we saw him clear empty death row, commute all sentences um, in 2003. And then it took some time, but then in 2011, the death penalty was abolished in, in Illinois. And so now what we are saying is that we are fighting a new death penalty, um, and that's um, an in-house death penalty, death by incarceration, life without the possibility of parole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like. And that is, I'm not going to lay down. We're going to sit into life, death by incarceration. We're going to sit into it in our lifetime. I've seen too much progress, and I see too too many hearts that's in this work for us not to win. And I remember those like days when, in my days when I was struggling to find myself, I didn't, I couldn't see walking out. But once I sobered up, right, I was like, there's no way I'm going to die in prison. And so that's why we were able to build the Ronaldo Hudson Mercy Committee when people was like, man, how are you not asking for mercy and you did it? I said, that's when you should ask for mercy. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like that. Like, to me, I was like, maybe, I'm, maybe I am tripping a little bit. I'm like, no, Ronaldo. Like, see, you have to like introduce yourself to these people before you can ever teach them anything. You have to meet people before you can teach them. And I realized that people hadn't met me, mm -hmm. you know, because the people that met me fell in love with me and I fell in love with them. 
because my heart, I wear my heart on my, you know, on my sleeves, as they say. I know that. Yeah. And I recognize that that gives me a tremendous amount of strength. It gives me a tremendous amount of light, if you will, because I'm not frightened of someone not seeing the best me. Mm -hmm. I'm frightened that there are people that are still in prison who don't get their chance. You know, I don't care how you feel about me. I'm out. Mm -hmm. Right. And we made it this far. Mm -hmm. And so now that the the struggle is ending perpetual punishment. Right. Why do you beat people down that are beat down? Right. Because, I mean, the truth, truth be told, we're economic benefit to an economy. Right. That is sinking. And rather than deal with people's humanity, they said, listen, we'll get you some legal slaves and we'll build plantations and call them prisons. And then we'll put these people in these prisons. Right. And then work them for uh, 10 cents a day. Right. And say, well, not only will we ensure that we can keep paying them 10 cents a day because we won't even give them the right to vote. Right. And on and on. Go ahead, Alice. I, I feel it coming. Well, I, I just wanted to say a word about Ronaldo's foresight, right? Because he actually came forward and said, we have to take into consideration, uh, we have to say that every single person who's on death row, every single person who's behind bars, um, that no one is the worst thing that they've ever done. He did this at a time when... Um, it was the time of the Innocence Revolution. That's right. what Larry Marshall has coined it, what was right. happening in Illinois and around the country where the media was finally beginning to pay attention to exonerations. In the height of that, um, Ronaldo had the foresight and the courage to say, hang on a minute, right? There's actually more to this and we need to look deeper and we need to look at every single person's humanity. So I really see that it's voices like Ronaldo's um, that have paved the way for really the fight that we need to have today, which is about the criminal punishment system and um, that it's not necessarily a matter of innocence or guilt, but it's a matter of who are we locking away and why and asking those kinds of questions. Yeah, because that is so important to me. Like, I keep hearing everyone, you know, and we're going to give people their second chance and we're going to, I'm like, Excuse me, I just got my first chance yeah. from Governor Pritzker, right? right? And I'm like, so I'm not buying into that. Like, narratives are vitally important. And so people oftentimes take what they can digest, right? I knew, Alice, back in the day that people ultimately would be able to digest that guilty people are worthy of a second look, right? Mm-hmm. And I said a second look, not a second chance, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Those are two separate things, right? And I was amazed that people didn't see it. In fact, I got a lot of shushing. Hey, be quiet. Shut up, mm. right? You're going to mess it up for all the innocent people. I'm like, well, I, excuse me. Like, yeah. I don't really think I have to defend that. Right. Because even the worst of y'all don't want to kill an innocent person. Right. Even though I remember back in the day doing the movement, when uh, people on the far right made a statement, well, sometimes mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to kill the innocent, right? That's just part of life. Wow. Right? That 
it is the people got to go so that we can yeah. get the rest of them. Yeah. And I used to be like, I am so grateful. Right. And I don't mean this. I mean this honestly from my heart. I am so grateful that innocent people were stood among us guilty because their echo for justice, right, gave platform for the injustice that occurred against the guilty, right? Well, there are two things you are making me think about. One is this distinction between the innocent and the so-called guilty, because you said, you know, the, the system is beating people down who've been beat down. You said you went in illiterate. Yeah. So there's something about the circumstances of the lives of most people in who are incarcerated in this country that they didn't have that first chance. Right. They didn't have a decent school to go to. Yeah. They have a library card. They didn't have money in their pocket, roof over their head, and so on. So in a way, I think that's a super important kind of point to make that this is not about second chances or the innocent it's about the humanity how we how we expand our sense of humanity i think that's super important it is brother because when you think about the fact that like one of the things and i shared this with alice when i came home i went and visited my grade school right the highest grade i went to was the sixth grade mm. and i went to john harvard and the building looked like it looked when I left 37 years ago. Mm. Actually, more like 40 years ago, mm. right? And I was like, wow. Uh, how could this be possible? Because there are people in positions that don't care about people having a first chance. They don't care about people like, you know what? I, I can't read. And so... So what? Don't worry. You don't have to read as a prisoner. Right? We got something for you. In fact, we want you illiterate. Right? Because it was only when I sobered up to say, hey, wait a minute. I'm valuable. You know, and I started reading different books and I started learning, you know, how big the world is in comparison to how they shrink the world, shrink the world for people. Just even in this neighborhood, if you think about, right? from Hyde Park, right, from uh, Little Village to all these different areas, different communities, Inglewood and back of the yard. And you think about the policies that govern these spaces, right? Is it for, if it, is it pushing an agenda? Absolutely. And the agenda that's winning right now is let's spend billions of dollars for enforcement mm. and let's throw pennies at re-educating and rebuilding lives. They throw pennies at us and then say, y'all should be grateful we have a re-entry program or we're going to help rehabilitate. And you're going to help rehabilitate that wasn't never habilitated gotcha. in the first place. But, but how do you answer the question of safety? How do you answer the ordinary citizens or the narrative that's out there that says, but we need all this because otherwise we won't be safe? How do you answer that? Are you safe with all of it? Duh. <laughs> so we ain't got to play that game. They got a cold game. They play on people, right? They said at the height of uh, carjacking, right? We want another helicopter. That's what the Chicago Police Department remedy for the, the rising, as they said, of carjacking. And then they didn't want to do basic algebra. Let's see. The pandemic 
have us all the grown people in the house. We we straining the kids. We're not giving them any activity. Let's see what kids do. Underdeveloped brains do. They do manage stuff, and that's not to minimize. You know that people get hurt. I don't. I would never want that. I preach against it. I talk to young people all the time about making better decisions. But I'm not going to throw people away because they can't see their way. It's my job to try to clear the way for them to see. Right? I always say education versus incarceration. They were saying incarcerate them, incarcerate them, and give us another helicopter. Give us twenty. Give us twenty million dollars so we can fly around the city and patrol and take pictures. Right. Chicago is what the fourth most surveyed city on the world stage. Wow. You know what I mean? And so when you start doing that, that, that map from London to New York to Dubai, Dubai, mm-hmm. and then Chicago, that's, I think is the, the most surveyed. So don't tell me if you wanted to stop crying, you couldn't, you don't because you are occupiers. You're not protecting and serving. You occupy space. And you notice when you move your little armored truck, right? You know, I'm just trying to get home. And then you criminal. You would shoot people just to get home. Well, it's interesting to think about. I mean, it's interesting to think about what policing or what public safety would be in a free and democratic society. It's also interesting to realize that in one of the most segregated cities in the world, what does policing do? I mean, what's the point of it, right? And I was just, I knew this, but I just reheard that, you know, a kid borrows grandma's car and commits a crime and they impound the car because it was used in a crime, right? I mean, so again, it's this kind of unbelievable collective punishment of a neighborhood, a community, an entire family. Yeah. I mean, I'm so glad. Well, just that we can, if we just stretch our imaginations just a little bit, right? We can start thinking about what public safety could look like, right? If we think about replacing all the blue lights and the surveillance cameras um, on all of our streets, right? And and change those out um, to, you know, basically uh, community health centers, right? Mm -hmm. Where people can go if they have needs. Um, there's some place that you can go and where that need will actually be met. Swap those out, you know, get rid of the prisons and in place, why don't we have state-of-the-art education centers, right? Like the best college campuses that are reserved only for um, a minority of students, right? That these replace out all the prisons and create all these state-of-the-art education centers with the best technology. Um, you think about the Reva and David Logan Center that we're in right now, right? What if all the prisons, you know, were replaced with those kinds of art centers, right? Yeah. Then you can begin to imagine what uh, public yeah. safety, I think, could look like. Get rid of all the fast food restaurants and replace them with urban, healthy eateries, right? Where you can eat what you want. And I think you can begin to imagine what public safety could and should look like. Yeah, I agree with that. Like, I always share with people, one of the things I did before before I came home is I have to establish a program called the Building Block. And one of the things we had was in one of our groups was a youth think tank. And so within the prison, there was a problem with the phone, that people were fighting over the phone, people were being ran over for other people to get to the phones. 
And so what I did is I convened the young youth think tank and I said to them, hey, look, this is the problem that we have the phone. What y'all have to do is give me a solution to this problem, right? I say, I'm not letting none of the old guys come mess with y'all, right? If they come down here messing with y'all, call me, right? I said, but when I come back, y'all need to give me some answers, right? They came up with a solution to the problem with the phone. And they came up with a system that ultimately was spread over the whole prison. Wow. That took down the assaults, took down all of the problems that was having being had with the phone because we were given autonomy to be right the protectors, not the police of our community. Right? The same thing, the 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 GED program in the facility took 45 people in the class. We have 112 people on each wing. What we did is said, give us the wing and give us two hours and let us tutor our peers. And we went from them graduating three people every 90 days. We prepared like 15 people within 60 days. And we just overtook the education department with graduating people because instead of having these brilliant professors who just haven't been given their doctrine yet, right, out of the cells and put them at a table with young brothers and they started tutoring them. And then these young brothers started seeing the brilliance in the faces of their uncles, right, and their grandfathers, and they started respecting us and they wasn't jumping and we weren't fighting each other anymore because we were invested in each other. And that's what's missing out here. You know, what, what you did is so, it's so brilliant. And as a lifelong educator, it's been kind of a, a mantra of mine is you unlocked the wisdom in the room. The wisdom was already there. Yes. And it wasn't something that had to be imposed from outside. You simply facilitated the wisdom finding each other. That is a, a yeah. beautiful story. Yeah. But I want to shift slightly and I want to, I want to mention, you mentioned the Logan Center, Alice. You know, Ronaldo, you have a, a show up at the Logan Center. I think it's yeah. closing at the end of the at the end of March, but it's called Truth and Beauty in the Hard Places. And it's your artwork. And it's uh, really a brilliant show. I've been there several times. And it's got um, some poetry by Tara Betts, um, which enhances and adds to the, to the yeah. beauty of the thing. But I'd be interested in you talking about how you took up art how you became an artist, and then artists in residence. Put that on your top of your resume. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that I was always an artist, right? But while on death row, it was stimulated. But it was stimulated with a different motivation. Uh, they were executing people when I was on death row. And so when I was there, just to put it in context, 12 people were executed, right? during my 13 years on Illinois' death row. And I always remind people from Charlie Walker to Andrew Cocorero, I remember those executions. And so one of the things that the department did, along with the John Howard Association, right, and other organizations, is they donated art supplies, right? And those art supplies were there 
maybe people may have had good intentions, but it was a distraction. But even though it was meant for a distraction, we used them to produce messages. And one of the things that I learned was that I can paint a picture and tell a story that don't take an hour. And so one of the things I've always wanted to do is remind people of what we can do mm. and what need to be done. And even though, like, when I look at that picture at the center of the Forgotten Women of COVID, right, one of my favorite paintings is a painting that Alice owns, which is Freedom Cause. Yeah, Alice, yes. The one Alice has it at her house? It's over, actually, at the exhibit. Oh, you lent it to the exhibit. Right. Yes. Alice, you're an art collector. I didn't know that. I am. I got my first artworks, original artworks, from men on death row who are artists. Ronaldo Hudson, Mario Flores, and Ronnie Kitchen. Wow. Yeah, right? And so for me, one of the things I promised my peers was that when I walk out, I would tell our story. You know? And so for me, my art is an extension of me being an activist. So I'm like an artivist. Yeah, I like it. Um, and, and, and I found, I mean, some of your paintings are stark and and a bit terrifying. And some of them are just absolutely just beautiful, um, colorful. Talk about your, your, your approach. Yeah, it's a combination of things. One, I, I think it's important that people get to see the beauty, you know, because if you just put all the hard stuff out there, people will be like, oh, I can't take it. And so it's kind of like an old school remedy, you know, with medicine. They put a little honey with it, right? And so that people can digest it, right? But then they have to come back. You know, yeah. you're saying that about your audience, but I think it's true of you. I mean, I think that, I think you're never, you're not willing to say the world is nothing but, you know, dark places and frightening things. You're, you're, it's important to you to say, that is, there's I, also life out there. No, listen, I will not hesitate to say that I am so excited about the potential and the beauty. Like, man, you beautiful, you know, like. Uh, you're beautiful to say like, that, man. No, real talk, man. Like, I ain't saying you're beautiful to look at. I'm saying, <laughs> why not? I'm saying, I'm saying, man, the 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 heart and the beauty of you, right? You definitely handsome man, but real talk, man, like your spirit, you know, and your willingness to stay in this work, you know, despite the struggles, because everybody don't celebrate us, you know. And when I see Alice, I always say Alice, she's the most beautiful person in the world, Absolutely. right? And I'm beautiful. I don't know if y'all noticed. Absolutely. Right? So yeah, I want people to be able to smile and laugh and still put in the work. And I don't think that's a contradictory. Right. And those landscapes um, that are in the exhibit, yeah. one thing I learned about them is that they're all from Ronaldo's imagination. It's what he envisioned um, in yeah. the darkest places, right? right? Yeah. When he was caged, right? To, he envisioned this beauty as something that is out there and something worth you know, reaching for and grasping for. And yeah. that's something that I, I just learned the other week from Ronaldo. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lesson in that for all of us, because especially 
those of us in the social movements because we can either get lost in kind of the, the difficulty and the oppression that we see everywhere and the exploitation. And we can get to the point where we don't also notice that there's a lot of ecstasy and gorgeousness out there. And if we don't mm-hmm. embrace that, we're pretty soon to burn out, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I will just add really quickly, like, I see beauty all over the place, you know? I see beauty. I'm gonna tell you a quick story. When I came home, I was over at Precious Blood Ministry and I decided to walk around the property. And so I was walking past this one tree and this squirrel came down and literally was almost this close. And my mind went to my prison mind. And I'm like, oh, like, you trying to punk me, squirrel? (laughs) And what I heard was the squirrel said, hey, dude, you free. Let that go. Nice. And I smiled, man. And before I could cross the alley, a tear was running down my eye because I looked up at 51st Street. I'm like, yeah, dude, you made it. Mm -hmm. Here you are. And this squirrel had to remind me because I was trying to go hard on the squirrel. (laughs) (laughs) And he was trying to just get a nut. And I don't mean that in a bad way. You know, you talked earlier about the governor commuting and clearing death row. And that took my mind to why, if they could do it collectively like that, then why can't we campaign for mass commutation for every woman who's been, who's in prison because she fought back against abuse or for every, every, uh, every elder prisoner? I, I mean, we could start naming the categories. Well, we can and we should. Um, People are already talking about um, how we can go about doing that. I know that folks who Ronaldo works with at the Illinois Prison Project are talking about some type of mass commutations campaign. I know that in the think tank um, at Stateville, Joe Dole and others have been uh, talking about, Joe has a paper, um, a white paper on the corrective clemency campaign. I think you've read it. Um, I have. Yeah. And, and I think that this is where, this is one strategy that we can use because there's so much that needs to be done to reverse um, the harsh sentencing practices that have been enacted over the years. But I'm, I'm on Ronaldo's side on this. I don't think we need to make distinctions between the violent or the nonviolent, the innocent mm-hmm. and the guilty. Absolutely. I think, I think what's neat about the idea of a mass commutation, a corrective Commutation, anybody who's been um, put in because of a dirty cop, anyone who's been tortured, anyone, I mean, we could begin to name those categories and come up with a significant... Right, one thing I will say, though, is that right now, um, a lot of reforms that are being considered are reforms that... um, are for the, it's called the, the low-hanging fruit, right? So it's right. people who um, have been convicted of nonviolent crimes. That's what I'm saying. And right. I think that we, you know, and the work that we're, we're doing is really saying we don't want to, it shouldn't just be reserved for the nonviolent crimes. And as Kathy Boudin often says from the Center for Justice, right, I think she's always someone who's reminding us we actually always have to talk about violence. We have to talk about, you know, those convictions as well. And I know that um, the 
the the students um, who are involved with PNAP at Stateville, they're all serving, you know, life or virtual life sentences, right? So they're people who have been convicted of what's considered violent crimes. So we do need to um, raise the bar and say we have to actually talk about and begin to insist um, that we do something um, about um, these sentences. Well, I want to go back to what Ronaldo was saying about, you know, people, people not having a first chance. I mean, when we talk about, when we have an expansive conversation about violence, let's talk about the violence of the street. Let's talk about the violence of not this is that individual, but let's talk about uh, the lack of health care, the lack of uh, drug treatment. Let's talk about that as violence. Um, to, to, to not have a roof over your head right. in this rich country, to not have access to a doctor. I mean, it's madness. And, and that's violence too. So I think we need to have an expansive conversation about that. But then I think it's, it's critical that we talk. And, and I guess here's where my question is going with you, for you two. How do we work for a reform? And I'd like you to talk a bit about the voting, um, prisoners having access to the ballot. How do we fight for reform and keep our eyes on something bigger than that reform? How do we do that? Well, I think it's really, it comes down to what we're watching happen right now. It's called the narratives, right? I call it the dangerous one-sided narrative, right? Right now, there are campaigns for, you know, seats in the state legislature and across the country. And I think the reality is most of the people that are representing those seats aren't educated with respect to what's the real issues, mm. right? Uh, we are doing over at the Illinois Prison Project actually what you're mentioning with respect to campaigns because we do have the Woman Survivors Campaign that is massive uh, commutations. We just filed 74 clemencies last week, right, as an organization for the seriously mentally ill. Mm. We have the veteran campaign where you have veterans who have been in prison over 20 years who served the country who are now over 60 years old right? And they're just sitting in cells. We have the emerging adult campaign with young people who weren't even up to the age of 25, yet they were given sentences to die in prison. And so, but we're only one organization, right? And if we can figure out how to take, right, away the idea that people struggle with who will get the credit. One of the things that I go back to and I think about what we did with the death penalty was, there wasn't, on our part, a big struggle of, we don't care who get the credit, get the door open, right? right. right. And so I still am optimistic, but I think it's important that we talk about the brilliance, not only of the people in Stateville, not only the people in Danville, but all across this nation where people are incarcerated, but yet they're freer than most of the people that are so-called free, mm -hmm. and they're brilliant, and they have something to do and they have something to contribute to our humanity as a nation. And until we give voice, right, to those issues and not let them play the game with us about, well, he committed or she committed a violent offense, mm -hmm. right? No, they committed a crime, right? Be it high or low, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I love that Alice made the point of the low-hanging fruit because that's an easy sale for people, not the public, because most of the public can handle the hard stories. Mm -hmm. 
it's the politicians that want to keep their seats mm. that are afraid of someone saying, but you're being soft on crime, mm. right? Mm. And Willie Horton and all the, yeah. and they do the yeah. fear mongering and they do all the, you know, okay, if you're not, if you don't think this way that every person who committed offense should never walk home, something's wrong with you. Mm. But yet you still want people to benefit, right? From the crimes, the offenses, right? right? Because once again, People make careers mm. out of doing a count and they mess the count up. Mm. Think about this. We're paying you $100,000 to count people and you can't count them. Mm. And then you get mad that you messed up the count. And so for me, I, I believe that we're in a space where that we have to get more organizations to push the education. Like, because I do believe education plays a major role and played a major role in my personal development and in my personal activism and my personal ability to look at things and look for the solution. Mm -hmm. You know, when I walk in a room, I'm thinking about how do you fix this room? How do you serve mm -hmm. this room? How do you protect this room? Mm -hmm. And I am not the police. I'm a person that care about people. Mm -hmm. And so my vision of a secure space is that you have properly educated people that care about people. So I actually also think that we can look back to what happened in Illinois around the death penalty to see, well, what what can we learn from that, right? And I think that you see Governor Ryan did impose the moratorium in 2001. He did uh, do the blanket clemency in 2003, but he didn't do that in a vacuum, right? There was a movement on the ground. There were campaigns on the ground. Um, there was investigative journalism that was happening that was exposing um, the, the the problems with the death penalty. Um, there was uh, coalitions and activism um, that was happening on the ground. There were the people on death row organizing themselves, right? I mean, the Ronaldo Hudson Mercy Committee came from death row. It was built from Ronaldo's cell, right? The death row 10 campaign was originally built actually from uh, the law classes that the guys had organized inside for themselves when Pell Grants um, were discontinued because of Clinton's crime bill. They started organizing Stanley Howard said, Stanley, well, right. I'm gonna do, I'm gonna have these law classes. And it was in these law classes where, you know, they were doing mock trials, right? Ronaldo was the judge, Ronnie was <laughs> the defendant, um, you know, Stanley was the prosecutor where the idea of the death row 10 um, also crystallized, right? Um, so you create the conditions so to, to push people who are in office to, to do these things. And that's what we can do um, again and what people are doing. And I do think that changing the narrative and shifting the narrative is such an important part of it, right? Because, you know, there was a time, um, you know, Ronaldo described the 13 ex executions that have 12 executions, mm -hmm. right? 13 people were freed at the time that Governor Ryan um, uh, imposed the moratorium. But um, those executions, right? I remember one of the first protests, Bill, you might have been hit at that too, right? There. At um, Outside of Stateville, mm -hmm. there was a double execution and there was just a small handful of us who were protesting um, for this double execution. But the townies and the people who were celebrating the execution were also out mm -hmm. and they were 
they had their boom box going mm-hmm. and they were partying, celebrating, right? So um, as you often say, right, history is contested, right? And in this moment, right, you could see that there was um, a, a narrative shift that had to happen before we would even be able to call something an innocence revolution, yeah. before Governor Ryan would be able to say, I couldn't look a mother in the eye and be responsible for killing um, her son. Right? It was because people um, insisted that their stories be told. And these stories right, are what shifted the narrative. It showed the humanity of people on death row. Right. So I think that's that's what has to happen. Um, that's what has to happen now. And that's what we are doing right now. Yeah. I do think that the art show, um, you know, the first art show I ever organized was an exhibit of Ronaldo's work, um, Kevin Cooper's work. I think Ronaldo and Kevin Cooper, who's still on death mm-hmm. row in California. And it was because I was so um, blown away by these paintings I was receiving and the artwork was so beautiful. I thought if, you know, similarly to what Ronaldo was thinking, if there's some way to show humanity, right? Maybe this art can do it. So a friend of mine owned a restaurant. We've all been there. Um, and I asked, could we, could we have this show on the walls of your restaurant? So that was the first art show. I, I organized and the yeah. intention was very much how can we get this work out into the public? How can we challenge how people think mm-hmm. about who's on death row, mm-hmm. who's incarcerated? So I think that shifting that narrative is so so such a critical component. No, I agree 100%. I remember when we were doing those mock trials and I don't know why I wanted to be the judge. I yeah. just did. <laughs> and, uh, and we was hard though. It wasn't like like people would think we did a play, we weren't playing. You know, we were like, and but what people don't know is out of those mock trials is people begin to pull up evidence of the injustices in their cases, mm-hmm. and they begin to see similarities and like, hey, wait a minute, yeah, you got this bill, hey, I got bill too. And for you know it, like what people take for granted. Mm-hmm. Like I hear all the conversations now about the torture this and the torture that. And I'm saying, I, I get it. I was there. But I remember when we were in those uh, uh, mock trials and people started connect, collecting all these names. And I'm like, wow, look mm-hmm. at this. Look what's unfolding. And so the central thing that always remember is if we're going to win and we are we have to have conversations mm-hmm. got to have that public space you know there's one line one sentence from ronnie kitchen's memoir where he describes the mock trials that really um stays with me and he said that because i, I hear you when you say that th- this was no joke you all took this really seriously and he said that um at one moment when he was discussing, I actually think Stanley was his defender, the, the public defender, right? Not the prosecutor, but, um, and so he and Stanley spent a lot of time talking about the case. And he has this one line that says, you know, I actually spent more time talking to Stanley about my case um, 
in the mock trial than I did my public defender in the real trial, wow. in my original trial. Wow. And you know what that says about our criminal legal system, right? Um, but yeah. yeah, what you say, right, that these guys discover that they have been tortured by the same torturing, the same group of men under Commander John Burge because they had been doing these mock trials with and one another. And the opportunity for dialogue and conversation. I mean, what, there's so much here because this whole notion of unlocking the wisdom in the room, making connections, seeing that I'm not alone, seeing that this issue connects to that issue. There's so much to unpack. I think we're going to bring it to a close because we're done with time. But I have to say, just being with the two of you and knowing your decades-long relationship gives me hope for the kind of future we could have because this is what we could have. People Absolutely. working across differences, across ages, across time, hand in hand um, to make a better world. And across bars. And across the bars, beyond yeah. the bars. Yeah, I would like to add one thing before we end because this conversation is so important and I'm looking forward, Alice, to me and your podcast. Like what people don't know is we're gonna do our own. And so I have to tell you, Bill, we're gonna have to invite you. Oh. Man, I can't no, think of anything better. I'm just letting you know. So podcasters, you're, the first, you're the first to notice. I appreciate that. Right? And the and so, podcasts are springing up like weeds, so yeah. why not join but, the Well, join No, the I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I heard you, but they don't have our story. That's correct. And they don't have our experience. No, I mean, the thing that's great about podcasts right now is they are a profoundly democratic um, intervention. And you can be heard. And you all so creatively created Voices from Death Row, live from Death Row. But this is a continuation. So, again, just seeing the two of you hand in hand working on this stuff for decades gives me hope that we can build a better world. Absolutely. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you being here. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo, to my co-conspirator Light Eileen, and to Jordan Allen for producing and engineering. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a vibrant site of creativity. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time. Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers. It is edited by me, Jordan Allen. The theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>